0: Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and induced Medicare Acquisition Syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups Podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy... Famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and recording tips to get your music out to the masses. Now first in our news lineup, we have Digitech and DoD have seemingly been acquired by Cortec of South Korea. Now Digitech and DoD, if you didn't know, two very popular pedal brands. Digitech makes pedals such as the Whammy, the Drop, the Ricochet, and the Bad Monkey. DoD makes pedals like the Grunge, the Gonculator, the Overdrive 250, the Rubberneck Delay, and the Carcosa Fuzz. Both of these companies were owned by a company called Harman. They're a music conglomerate that chiefly owns JBL, and they were owned by Samsung. Now, it appears uh, after a while, the Digitech and DoD brands disappeared from Harman's website, which is usually a bad sign. usually means that a brand is uh, drying up, especially because Digitech had been on automated production for a while. Essentially, the whole intellectual property was on life support, where they were just making whammies, drops, and ricochets and didn't have any new products going on or any new types of R&D. But after a while, they disappeared from Harman's website, and the only way you could find Digitech's official website was actually going to their website and trying to order something. When you did that, you'd find that everything was out of stock or unavailable to order, and their Instagram page had been very inactive for a while. But... uh, Me, falling victim to the hype and not wanting prices to go up as a loved brand got discontinued, I panic bought a whammy because I didn't have one yet, and I'm still happy to have a whammy. It was a great way to justify that purchase to the wife. But relieved to see that Cortec has stated that they've acquired both of those brands and their intellectual property. Now, whenever there's a merger, people can be worried. Whenever there's intellectual property acquisition by another firm... It can be a worrisome time, a troublesome time for a brand, and especially you know customers or potential customers of that brand. So what could this mean? I will say that Court is a South Korean company that, to my knowledge, mostly is known for making guitars up to this point. I've had a few Court guitars and basses, and I will say that they do make very good quality stuff as long as you're spending at the right price point. Now, a lot of people's first interaction with courts may be you know their X100 or their KX100 models which go for under $200 depending on the options you pick but these guitars are similar to a squire bullet they're a very low priced model geared towards beginners however if you get up into the you know the mid fives to the $800 that kind of area where the action's happening, you can get some really cool models from Court that have EMG pickups, Grover tuners, all kinds of stuff that everybody wants to see on a quality electric guitar. So I think that Court, keeping up with the intellectual property and the customer base that's already been established by DoD and Digitech, I think they're going to make really good quality pedals. There's always the option that it could be worse, especially the first batch as they're moving factories and figuring out their tolerances and their QC, but I think this is going to be a good thing for the brand. Um, Overseas could mean cheaper prices. Now, Digitech and DoD were owned by Samsung, which is already a Korean company. However, with Court having their own in-house manufacturing dedicated to guitars, dedicated to music electronics... I think this could see that vertical integration that causes us as consumers to receive lower prices. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, paying less for gear is always great. Another thing that might really blow up now that this huge, huge company has shown interest in these brands is bringing back discontinued pedals. If you look at Digitech and DoD's previous catalogs of products, they are enormous. They have so many different kinds of pedals, so many different kinds of options, but a lot of those have been discontinued. You know, they got really popular during the 80s and 90s, uh, early 2000s. And then other companies, more boutique builders like Earthquaker, like Walrus, they kind of beat them out and took the spotlight. And I think something that'll be really cool is that now that this company is showing interest in this intellectual property, they can start bringing back these old circuits that really brought the grunge scene like nirvana into the spotlight and i think that's really great you know that's not to say that just one pedal is going to bring you into the spotlight as much as we all think it will but it's great to see that sound having the opportunity to come back especially with this renewed interest in the brand next up on our news is this company johnny foreigner out of the uk is offering completely customized electric guitars now this isn't necessarily a new concept Right. Balaguer and Halo have the online tools to go ahead and build your own custom electric guitar, which I think is great. You know, if you're ever bored on an afternoon, take a look at Balaguer and Halo's tools. It's super cool to just mess around and put all the parts in that you want, pick a body shape that you want, pick colors, wood types, and then realize that your wallet is not thick enough to afford all the guitars that you want to make on there. But it's still cool to screenshot. Um What's interesting, though, with this new tool and this new company just starting up, they're only offering one body shape. It's called the 6. To me, it's sort of reminiscent of a EVH Wolfgang, but I still think it looks really cool. It's a really interesting take on the design, and I think it's a great body shape for them to just start with. Uh, these are USA-built guitars, but they're relatively inexpensive for a completely customized guitar. They start at about $12.99. If you go ahead and Configure a guitar with similar options at Balaguer or Halo, you're going to be paying for a lot more. But also at the same time, you are paying for a more established brand, and they do have some more options. All of the six models from Johnny Foreigner include hip shot tuners as standard. That's really, really noteworthy to me, because when I'm buying a new guitar, I typically look at tuners for their quality. Uh, Tuners are one of the things that really bug me if they're not done right or if they're done very cheaply. So usually they're one of the first things to get replaced if I buy a guitar that doesn't have those types of tuners on them, any type of third-party established brand. One thing that I was a little bit disappointed by with the Johnny Foreigner customization is that there's no option for third-party pickups or bridges. That's somewhat upsetting because, you know, you see Balliger and Halo, and they have options for EMGs, they have options for Seymour Duncans, even for the Fishman Fluence pickups. And I'm a little upset to not see that they're offering any third-party pickups, but that might be because they're currently getting their supply chain underway and trying to figure out those options to make them available for everybody. So I'm excited to see what the future holds. To me, it looks like a great option for an inexpensive, completely customized guitar, but that's up for you as the buyer to decide. If you want to get your feet wet and spend a relatively smaller chunk of change on getting a guitar that's completely tailored to your interests, I'd say go for it. You get whatever finish you want, get whatever type of wood you want, get whatever configuration of pickups or controls you want, and it seems to be relatively less expensive for a USA-built custom guitar. Go ahead and check them out. At least mess around with the online builder tool like I like to do. Last in our news, Earthquaker Devices has released a new pedal called the Special Cranker. Now, talking about pedals coming back from the dead and practicing circuit necromancy like we're hoping Cortech does with Digitech and DoD, Earthquaker Devices has introduced the special cranker. This is based on the original circuit that they had called the speaker cranker, which if you Google it, you'll find it's not a boost. It's not a boost. But it only has one knob, similar to a boost like an Arrows or an LPB one However, The speaker cranker was an overdrive, a one-knob overdrive, and it was praised for its clarity and its sound. This basically means that, similar to the Klon we're going to talk about later in the episode, it's known for not coloring your tone. It's just giving you that grit and that bite that you want to hear in your guitar. Now, The original pedal only had one knob labeled More. The updated pedal has two more knobs labeled Tone and Level with a diode selection switch. I really love to see a diode selection switch on pedals. It always piques my interest to see how something can sound when it's using a different diode configuration. It's one of the reasons that I'm a big fan of the Walrus eras and ages. Having that five-way rotary selector for different diodes is especially exciting to me. Uh, The diode selection on the special cranker is the original asymmetric silicone diode and a new germanium diode selection. Uh, The demos on this pedal sound Like, it has all the sponginess, all the warmth, all the clarity of the original speaker cranker, but the special cranker definitely makes use of those new knobs and that new diode selection switch. Gives you a lot of tone options that just weren't available to you before. Jumping into the meat and potatoes of our episode, we're going to be talking about my favorite, your favorite, Reverb's favorite, and the market's most expensive transparent overdrive, the Klon. Now before we get started with the Klon, we have to ask ourselves, what is the Klon? So the Klon Klon is a tube screamer-like overdrive that's engineered to be transparent. And what that means is that the Klon itself is designed not to impart any type of coloration on your guitar tone. It's designed to just add grit, add hair, add just a little bit of bite to where your tone is overdriven going into your preamp section. The Klon is a simple three-knob affair with a gain, a volume, a tone pot, and a single foot switch. Very similar to the Tube Screamer that it's designed off of. Some players use it for the drive sound, but it's also very popular as a clean boost. And in this configuration, only the volume and the tone control are used. The gain's all the way down, or it's just set very low. Now, the history of the Klon. So, the Klon was developed by this guy named Bill Finnegan in the early 90s, and it was released in 1994. It was engineered by Bill himself with two MIT grads, one of which wasn't even a guitar player, which may explain why the circuit is a little bit weird for a regular guitar pedal. Each pedal was hand-built by Bill himself. It took about roughly three months to build each pedal to order. Customers actually had to call Bill and have a discussion to ensure that he thought they would be getting something they were happy with. This is probably due to the fact that he didn't really have any retail outlet for the clone. So he didn't want to deal with returns or any of those kind of hassles. And that kind of wait list honestly reminds me of the whole King of Tone fiasco going on with Analog Man right now. Just a really, really popular pedal that a lot of people want, but it's it's all over the place. I mean, the waiting list is multiple years. Now, Klons had already sold for inflated prices soon after release. Finnegan wasn't really able to hire employees because where he was at in Boston it was a high commercial space rent price, so he wasn't able to really expand the operation. Uh, and due to this low supply and high demand, prices skyrocketed because he wasn't able to scale the business. They were released in very limited runs for a starting price of two hundred and twenty-five dollars, adjusted for inflation to twenty twenty-two. This is four hundred and twenty-six dollars, according to the U.S. inflation calculator. Uh, at the time, that was an insane price for a pedal. You know today. People would pay 225 for almost any Strymon, a Dod rubberneck, all kinds of pedals. But back then, 225 was an insane price for a pedal, super boutique. And I think that that sort of lends credence to the statement made by like Red Bull's founder, where he stated, "Well, why is your why is your energy drink three dollars when Monsters are two bucks and they have a bigger can?" That if you charge people a premium price, they'll know it's a premium product, and I think that's what Bill was going for with this with this pedal price. Uh, approximately 8,000 units were made. Uh, that's by estimate, but curiously, the Klon website actually claims only 5,400 between 1994 and 2008. Finnegan discontinued the Klon in 2008, and for a while they actually built even smaller amounts for a single mother who needed money for her to sell on eBay for an auction, Usually netting between two and three grand per pedal. So even back, you know, right after 2008, these were extremely popular, still going for extremely inflated prices. But he was doing this to give money to a family friend. And I think that's very noble and very charitable of him. Now, the Klon KTR was then released. The KTR is either a nod to an alternate spelling of Centaur, which is the same but with a K or Clon the Reissue, but Bill has never publicly stated what the KTR means. However, it was released in 2014 for a price of $329. The KTR was designed to be easier to repair than the original Klon, and it was simple enough that he could hire a manufacturer to make them if need be. The KTR includes a lot of Bill's humor, such as stating, kindly remember, the ridiculous hype that offends so many is not of my making, right there on the case. The KTR also has a switch to allow true bypass. Uh, the original Centaur was only buffered bypass, but the switch is labeled, only labeled almost always better for buffered bypass and almost always worse for true bypass. Interesting that he has a take like that on it, especially as a lot of pedal manufacturers are touting that they have true bypass in their pedals. Uh, from 2014 to 2021, the KTR was made with exactly the same diodes and op-amp that the original Centaur used. But Bill made an announcement that the supply was running out of new old stock diodes that he had bought in the early 90s. Those are the ones that were used to make the original Klon. And with a lot of people claiming that all of the magic from the Klon Centaur comes from those diodes, I'm curious to see how the value of post-2021 KTRs will compare to pre-2021 KTRs with those sets of old 1N4A diodes. Now, what makes the Klon so valuable? The original circuit for the clone was gooped. This means that black epoxy resin covered the circuit board and that prevented reverse engineering. Basically, you'd take your circuit board, put all your components on it, and then you would pour liquid epoxy resin on it. That would then harden, and it was opaque. You couldn't see through it. So anybody that would try to get the resin off would hopefully destroy the board in the process, preventing somebody from stealing your ideas, tracing your board, or seeing the values of the components you used. The limited amount of supply, combined with the long lead time on orders, made them extremely valuable while they were still in production. And then you have artists such as Jeff Beck and John Mayer begin using them. That really drove up the used market price, even though it was always high. Today, Klon Centaur prices vary based on which version it is. There's a few different designs. Uh, There's a blank silver enclosure, a blank gold enclosure, and a gold enclosure with a Centaur design on it, referred to as the Golden Horsey. Golden Horsey is the most valuable one. The average in early 2022 seems to be between five grand and six grand, depending on condition, with one Golden Horsey selling for about eight grand in mint condition in September of 21. This is a marked increase from an average of between one and a half to two and a half grand in 2017 2018. And my opinion on that is it was probably driven up by the COVID 19 pandemic, with more people staying inside, more people. You know, spending money on hobbies that allow them to just stay in their house and not go out, that probably caused more people to buy Klons and, like everything else, to use gear prices went up. So what's so special about the Klon? The Klon circuit was actually successfully reverse engineered by a group of pedal builders who pooled their money to buy one and found someone who could remove the goop without destroying the pedal. Uh, The Klon sound is contributed by a few things from their findings. First is a charge pump that doubles the voltage internally, increasing clean headroom to allow more transparent overdrive, unlike the Tube Screamer sound Bill was trying to modify. Now, the charge pump doubling the voltage does an interesting thing for the pedal. It takes the input voltage of 9 volts, runs it up to 18 volts, and what helps with this is any pedal that you run at a higher voltage will have increased headroom. And that greatly contributes to the transparent sound, whereas you're not getting any breakup from the pedal, you're only getting the breakout from the clipping diodes. Let's take a minute and listen to an OCD. An OCD is an obsessive-compulsive drive. It's a pedal made by Fulltone that you can run anywhere from 9 volts to 18 volts. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play the same passage, run at 9 volts and then at 18 volts, so you can hear more of the natural clipping that occurs From exceeding the headroom on the 9 volt power supply to less of that clipping that occurs when you don't exceed the headroom due to an 18-volt power supply. Let's go ahead and give a listen to the 9-volt version. So in that version, you hear a lot of flubbiness and a lot of just clipping where it's exceeding the headroom of the pedal itself. But If we go ahead and we plug the OCD into an 18 volt power supply, you'll hear a lot less of that clipping, the notes will be a lot cleaner, but they'll still have the same amount of distortion, it's just more natural and pleasant musical sounding because we're not clipping the actual input of the pedal. Let's go ahead and give a listen to the OCD with an 18 volt power supply. So as you can hear, that sounds a lot better. It's a lot improved. There's a lot more clipping from the diodes rather than clipping from the input. One fair word of warning though, if you're curious to try this out for yourself on your own drive pedals, check the manufacturer's specs. You want to make sure that you actually can run the pedal at 18 volts or any voltage other than 9. Otherwise, you run the risk of actually damaging the pedal, damaging the circuit by overvolting it. So keep an eye on your user manual or on the decals next to the power input because you want to make sure that you don't damage the circuit. Now, next, what's really interesting about the Klon is that it uses an op-amp called a TL072. It has higher power supply unit rails and that allows for higher fidelity signal creation as well as high input impedance to reduce coloration of the tone, further contributing to the transparent overdrive. Now, broken down into more... English friendly terms what this essentially means the more input impedance you have on a pedal meaning the more resistance at the input the less colored the tone the pedal will add to your tone at least ideally in practice um, so having an op-amp that has a, a higher input impedance is going to contribute to that transparent overdrive sound a lot more compared to something like a tube screamer which runs off of 4558 op amp or even a JFET instead of a TLO 72 and that'll definitely contribute to your transparent tone versus the trademark mid-hump coloring of a Tube Screamer. Now the germanium diodes are a common type, they're 1N34A diodes, but Bill maintains that his specific set of diodes sound different and greatly contribute to the sound. That's something that's debated by a lot of guitar players and a lot of gear aficionados out there, whether, you know, if you have a one three, four a diode that was made, you know, in Germany instead of Russia, is it going to sound the same? Is it going to sound different? And while there is some merit to that argument that different factories can have different tolerance specs so you can end up with different quality parts, I do think, at least to my ear, that especially... Circuits that use the same circuit and the same part numbers for their diodes sound close enough that any differences that you have typically can be bumped around with EQ and made to sound very similar to an original one to where your audience definitely will not be able to tell the difference. Now something unique to note is that the Klon uses a non-standard power plug. It looks similar to a 3.5mm AUX cable. But the KTR uses a standard 9-volt center-negative barrel connector in line with other common guitar pedals. So if you ever get an original Klon, you'll notice that the power plug actually looks like a headphone plug. Where the KTR, it, Bill took some suggestions from people that really enjoyed the Klon and made some changes to the KTR, including that buffer switch that we talked about before. But one of them was using an actual center-negative Boss-style power adapter. Now, what are some common clones, sometimes stylized as clones with a K, that will get you there without breaking the bank? The Clon KTR is obviously the first option. It's made by the same man up until 2021. It's made with the same parts and you can get it for about a grand, a lot less than the four to five grand that we're seeing for clones now. The Wampler Tumnus is a great option. I've got a Wampler Tumnus here. I absolutely love it. Uh, the deluxe version is great with those extra controls. allows you to really play around with the circuit, and I think a lot of the stuff that Brian Wampler puts out is just really good quality. I mean, if you watch his videos on YouTube, you'll see he's a pedal nerd. He loves what he does, and I have great confidence in all the products he puts out. The deluxe with the extra controls costs 200 bucks. The mini has the classic controls, and it costs $150. Go ahead and scoop those up. Get them on your board. You won't regret it. Next, we have the J-Rocket Archer and Icon. The Archer is silver. It's $200. The Icon is gold. It's also $200. Both of these versions have the same circuit in them. It just matters what color you like. Do you want silver or do you want gold? Now, the Jeff is another version of the Archer and Icon. It's all new old stock parts. So it has the same set of parts that Bill Finnegan used that uh, J-Rocket got their hands on. And you can get that for $290. It's a great option if you really feel like having those new old stock parts are going to help you get that Klon sound. Next up is the Mosky Golden Horse. This is definitely the least expensive on the list, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It's a $35 pedal. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it from multiple different sources. And it still sounds great. If you look at a lot of different reviews, I think uh, Anderton's actually did a blind test with Danish Pete where he said that the Mosky Golden Horse sounded great. So that's a great option if you just want to get your feet wet, and you don't want to necessarily plop down the big investment on one of the more expensive Klon clones. Next we have the Molnier Mythos. Now this pedal is $200, and this pedal is a great pedal. It's got a great sound to it. To my ear, it doesn't sound as close as some of the other options, but it does have a character that's all its own. So if you give a listen to some of the demos, and you really like what's going on with that pedal, I'd say pick it up. I mean, it's got a great sound. It's not as close to the actual Klon sound as some of the other clones on this list, but I still think it's a great pedal, and it's got a character all its own that's really unique and can get you some great tones. Next up is the Soul Food. Now, the Soul Food is made by Electro Harmonics. It's about $100, and one thing that I find really interesting about the Soul Food is that it doesn't use the same diodes or any of the same new old stock parts, that the Klon does. However, there's quite a few resources online where you can find that people have done studies, especially using oscilloscopes and frequency analyzers, and people have made a frequency response graph that compares the electroharmonic soul food to the Klon, actual Klon centaur. And you'll see in the graphs that there really isn't much of a difference between the frequency responses. And that makes me think that, honestly, the The differences between the Soul Food and the clon are negligible, and I think that's remarkable for a pedal that's only a 100 bucks. Now, I have a Soul Food here, and that's what I'm going to be using for the demo for this podcast. So if you like what you hear, go on Sweetwater, go on Guitar Center, go on Reverb, go to your local city park, pick up a Soul Food. See if you like it. Uh, Next, we do have the MXR Sugar Drive. This is kind of misleading. It doesn't look like a clone at all, however it is. And it's a mini pedal, so if you want to save some real estate on your pedal board but still get the clone sound, go for it. It's in a beautiful sparkly blue. It's about 120 bucks. so if you're a big fan of MXR, pick that up. You won't be disappointed. Last, we do have the Ryra clone. It's about $200, and the pedal itself is probably the most aesthetically true to the original Klon, at least on this list. It comes in an enclosure that's the similar size as the Klon, which is an enormous honking thing for a pedal, and it's got a stylized artwork of an archer centaur on the casing as well with those red oxblood pointer knobs. It's a great sounding pedal, it's a great looking pedal, and it's all around a great option. But for now, let's go ahead and dive into the soul food. So using one of the more tame configurations, and arguably one of the most popular, let's take a listen to the Soul Food being used as a clean boost on a single-coil pickup guitar running through a Fender-style amp. So what you just heard there was the electro Soul Food Playing in a clean boost configuration, and I think it sounds really great. It adds a little bit of grit to your tone, forcing your amp to naturally break up a little bit, driving it to like a really good bluesy, country, or even just bedroom pop kind of tone. I think it sounds really good, and definitely worth the $100 that you can spend on it, but that's not all it can do. Let's take a look, same guitar, same amp, at the Soul Foods Drive Sound. <laughs> So now we've heard the Electro Soul Food in both configurations. It's one of the less expensive clones on the list. Go ahead and make your decision. I mean, do you think that it sounds good enough for you to use in place of, you know, dropping a pretty sizable chunk of change on an actual Klon pedal? If you do, you can find it at almost any major retailer. Probably even find it at Walmart if you looked hard enough. But go ahead, pick one up, try it out, and you're not going to be disappointed. Now, going from talking about Klon clones, I think it's great to jump into this next topic where we want to sound like a famous artist without spending through our whole wallet. So, the artist that we're going to be talking about today is John Mayer. Pretty sure everybody's heard of him, but if you haven't, he released this song called Slow Dancing in a Burning Room, which is what we're going to be trying to emulate the tone from today. Now, Slow Dancing in a Burning Room was released in 2006 on his album Continuum, probably one of his most famous albums. Uh, it's a somber ballad about two people who both know a relationship is coming to an end, but neither one wants to talk about it. Uh, this is pretty similar to me and my love for garlic bread as I get older. Trust me, the, the carbs really get to you. Um, believe it or not, I, I couldn't, you know, determine... The actual message of this song, I thought it was about two people literally slow dancing in a burning room, but my wife was able to explain it to me, and now we're here with this podcast episode where I don't sound too ridiculous. Uh, It's a very emotional song with a recognizable guitar phrase. Um, Guarantee you, even if you don't know the song by name, you've probably heard this guitar phrase before. And it peaked at number seven on the U.S. billboards and is one of his most played live songs. So, what does John Mayer use in this song? Uh, For his guitar, he's really known for using the PRS Silver Sky. It's a signature Strat copy, um, but during this time, he was still using regular Fender Stratocasters. Uh, He uses the neck pickup for the clean tone and the bridge for solos and lead tones. So, really, any pickup with single coils, you're going to be in the ballpark for this type of tone. But sticking with strat copies your number one option is the prs silver sky se Uh, this guitar goes for 800 900 bucks Uh, it was just released and it is a prs silver sky but it's made overseas with the rest of their se line it's a great option if you want john mayer's signature guitar just made overseas with some small differences Uh, number two is the squire classic vibe strat these go for about 400 bucks once again same model of guitar that John Mayer's played before, get very similar tones, three single-coil pickups. You're not going to go wrong here. Great worksmanship great quality. Uh, number three is the Yamaha Pacifica. The Yamaha Pacificas, those models can be found over a variety of price points. You can get some of them on the used market, even cheaper than $100 if you find a good deal. And once again, it's a Strat copy. It's either HSS or SSS. So you'll be able to find a pickup configuration that works for you, and go ahead and pick up a guitar, and you're set with your guitar portion as long as you've got something with single-coil pickups. But one of the options we just talked about is a great choice to get started. Next, John Mayer typically uses Fender amps. Um, He did branch out into Dumble and 2Rock amps. Uh, They're higher rarity, but they're still a relatively similar sound profile to Fender amps, even though they're much more expensive. So the first option for this is a Fender Tone Master Deluxe Reverb reissue. These are the Fender Deluxe Reverb amps, but they're actually solid state. They don't use tubes. They're extremely light, but Fender has dedicated a whole host of a DSP processor just to recreating the tone of the Deluxe Reverb. So that's a great option, extremely light, goes for about eight, dollars 900 bucks, and that'll get you... 90% of the way there because it's a Fender amp. Um, number two is the Fender Mustang GTX. Now the Fender Mustang GTX is not a Tone Master, it is a modeling amp that models multiple different types of amps. So if this is your first amp that you're going for, or maybe you're upgrading from like a really small starter pack amp, this is a great option because not only can you get these John Mayer tones, but you can get anything from you know orange amp tones to Bogner tones to Vox tones, Marshall tones, anything you really want, anything under the sun, you can get out of the Fender GTX. Plus, it's got inbuilt effects. So with the effects pedals we talk about, a lot of the effects you can find something close already inside the amp. Lastly, we have the Vox Valvner G Silk Drive. This is actually a pedal, but it's a preamp pedal that's been released by Vox that's supposed to be a Dumble sound amp. Uh, these go for about $200. bucks. i am a huge fan of amp-in-a-box preamp pedals. All you need is a cab sim, which conveniently, the Vox Valve has a cab sim built in. Um, but for this demo, we're going to be using the Vox Valve Silk Drive. Uh, we're going to be dialing in a fair amount of mid-range on all these and then have a nice clean tone. Uh, We're going to use the boost to push it to the edge of breakup for solos. So no real dirt coming from the amp or pedal here, but uh, most of our dirt is going to be coming from our pedals. And then if I didn't mention it before, we're going to be using a Squire Classic Vibe Strat with this amp. So let's go ahead and take a listen to what this guitar and what this amp sound like, uh, just on their own, without any pedals or anything like that. We're going to get a nice John Mayer tone dialed in and we're going to start the song and see how close we can get. So that was just our guitar and our amp and it's a good foundation for a tone but it's not all the way there especially if you listen to the real song and hear his tone. So let's talk about the real fun stuff. What pedals does John Mayer use on this song? Now. The first pedal and a great foundation for any tone is talking about the reverb. Uh, The reverbs that John Mayer uses are typically always-on tones, and in this song, he's most likely using the Strymon Flint, which is a combination tremolo and reverb. Uh, In this song, only the reverb sound is used, and that's what we're going to be focusing on. Some great options uh, that are not going to hurt your wallet as much as a Strymon Flint are the TC Electronic Drip, for $80. It's a great, great, great TC electronic pedal that comes from the Smorgasbord uh, smorgasbord Tone line of pedals. Uh, They're great budget pedals uh, that really, really encapsulate some vintage tones, and they've got some really cool 70s, 80s style artwork to boot. Really worth the money, especially if you're just trying to get your feet wet with a certain type of effect. Next option is the JHS 3 Series Reverb. It goes for about $100.00. It's JHH's pared-down line of pedals. Uh, they're, you know, a very minimalistic style enclosure, but they've got a great circuit, and it's backed by a, a great warranty, and they're made by a great company. So go ahead and give it a try. You're not going to be disappointed. And the last option, the one that we're going to be using during this demo, is the Fender Marine Layer Reverb. It goes for about 180 bucks, so it's on the higher end of things in terms of the price spectrum from this list. But the reverb here is just used to make the recording sound more natural and less flat. Dialing in a good subtle spring reverb will give your sound here the depth it needs. In the case of the marine layer pedal itself though, you want to use a small room sound because there's six different reverbs available. The marine layer can also be doubled as the delay if you want to save money with the hall algorithms. Just set them to a really long uh, reverb time and it'll work for a very short, kind of slapback delay. But let's go ahead and give it a try. So what you just heard there was the Fender Marine Layer Reverb added to our tone of our uh, Squire Classic Vibe Strat and our Vox Valver G Silk Drive, creating the foundation for our rhythm guitar tone for Slow Dancing in a Burning Room. Next, what we're gonna focus on is the delay. Now in this song, John Mayer uses a Strymon Volante. It's about $400 and it's a very serious combination analog delay and looper. We're only gonna be focusing on the delay sound here, looper sound we're not too worried about, or the loop time or loop quality. First up, we have the MXR carbon copy. $149. It's $149. It's going to be what we're using in this demo, and it's a great bucket brigade device analog delay, meaning it uses an integrated circuit of capacitors to store the charge to create the delay sound. Another good option is the Behringer VD400. It's $25. It's a copy of a boss delay. It's a bucket brigade device. It's a great option if you want to kind of get your feet wet and not spend a lot of money in the delay world like we were talking about with the uh, tc drip for the reverb world last option is the tc echo brain it's 60 bucks it's from that same line the smorgasbord of tone pedals that the tc electronic drip was from but um, it's a great option it's got another really 70s style artwork on it and uh, definitely try it out uh, if you any of the delays on this list are going to get you very close to that tone as long as they're an analog delay and I think that's really going to be able to push your tone forward especially uh, analog delays are a much older effect than a digital delay however they're characterized by like darker repeats that degrade and get warbly and have a lot of analog warmth and goodness that comes with them so give it a try you won't be disappointed But let's go ahead. We're going to set the MXR carbon copy up. It's going to be for the lead tone. We're going to dial in a relatively small amount of delay just to give the sound some ambient echo as if it's being played in like a large hall. Let's give that a listen and see how it sounds. Now that we've got our delay sound cooking, we're going to go ahead and talk about his boost. Now, John Mayer uses a Keeley Katana Clean Boost. It goes for about $200. It's a great Keeley option, but let's talk about some less expensive options. First, we've got the TC Rush. It's $45. It's from that smorgasbord of tone lines once again. Extremely popular and extremely good quality for pedals that you're just trying to get your first one of that effect. Try it out and see if you like it. Next is the TC Electronics Spark, it's $70. This is not from the Smorys Board of Tone lines, and it's one of TC Electronic's more popular pedals. And you check anywhere and you'll find somebody that has a TC Electronic Spark. Like I said, though, it's only $70, so give it a try. It's a great pro level boost that a lot of people use. I think you'll be happy with it. And then our most expensive option from this list is going to be the Wampler Decibel Plus, it goes for $120. Uh, Wampler pedals are great. As I said before, I can't talk Brian Wampler up enough. He's a very intelligent, very passionate individual that just makes some great pedals. Now the boost in this song is being used to drive the input of the amp into the edge of breakup to give the signal some bite in the jangly portion of the lead tone using the bridge pickup. It's such a subtle overdrive that you could get away with using a tube screamer with a gain dial to 0 and a level set above unity gain. In this case, we're actually going to be using the clone as our boost for this tone. So we've got the gain set all the way down on our Soul Food, which is acting as our clone clone. And we're going to go ahead and run that with the other tones that we've created before to see how it all sounds put together. So, we've got all of our sound crafted together from the start with our guitar as a Squire Classic Vibe Strat, to our Vox Valvener G Silk Drive running as our amp, to our Fender Marine Layer Reverb, our MXR Carbon Copy Delay, and our Electro-Harmonix Soul Food as our clone clone. I think it makes for a great John Mayer tone. I think it makes for something that if you go and you play this live, especially in a mix I don't think your audience is going to be able to tell the difference between if you were using multiple thousands thousands of dollars worth of gear or less than a grand. It's a great tone that you can use for more songs than just that one, and you can get a lot of great sounds out of it. Certainly more gear than I started with when I began playing guitar. But, now that you've got your tone, let's head into our recording tip of the week, and let's talk about something really important. Getting your sound out to the masses. How can you mic your guitar cab with that beautiful tone we just made? So, first question that you might have, why should I mic the cab? Right? Because we just talked about how we were using a a Vox Silk Drive. It's got a cab sim in it. Why not just run the quarter inch output into the board? Just go direct. That's a great option. You can do that 100%. But micing a cab gives you some advantages that digital recreations just can't do. A guitar amp without a cap in the first place, is very troubling and thin, and it's not like a can of these. So, let's say that you're using a solid state amp, and you're not running a cab with it, and never run a 2 amp without a cap. But you're using a solid state amp, and you don't have a cap, in the middle of it, and you're running straight into the middle or you're using a different amp a box that doesn't have a cap, in the it, and you're running straight into the middle they don't make it extremely travelably and thin and chaotic, and that's because it's cabinets actually imparting the tone of their own, and most guitar instruments are designed to be run with the cabinet. Now, on these direct-out amps, like the BoxCop, and the Solo Drive, or even the rev generators that have the 2-node software built into them, you're relying on the quality of the cab simulation. On both of these examples that I just gave with the REV and the Valve Energy, their cab simulation is really good. But some cases, they're not so great. I've had some cab simulators that are actually just a little bit of low-end EQ added onto the signal. And they're usually very low quality, and it doesn't capture all the dynamic response that a cabinet usually would. So if you're looking for cab simulation that's built into your amp or your amp simulator, You want to make sure that it's an actual impulse response. We'll talk about what that is in a a later episode, but know for now that it's a digital recreation of a room or speaker cabinet for you to use as a cabinet simulator. Now, micing a cabinet allows you to control the sound because you control where the mic's placed, whereas with cabinet emulation or with IRs, Maybe it's a static IR where you just have that speaker cab in that one room with that one microphone in that one spot. With you miking your own cabinet, you can put it in any room you want, in any position in that room, use any mic you've got available to you, and put that mic in any position on the speaker you'd like. You can even move it during the recordings. Although I don't recommend doing it while the recording's happening. Cut the recording and then move it. You don't want handling noise getting into your track. Miking a cab can allow some of the room you're in to create natural reverb and sound more real. Now, a lot of us really look for natural sounding reverb, or in some cases people want really crazy, swishy, swooshy, shimmer reverb. But in this case, let's just talk about natural reverb, sounding like the person who's recorded the track is in the room with, with you. It's especially important when your listeners are wearing headphones, because headphones are very static, they close off the ears, it's not reflecting off the walls of the room. So using reverb, good natural sounding room reverb, is going to make your track sound a lot more real. A lot of times you can accomplish this just by micing your cabinet yourself and capturing the sounds of the room you're in. Get creative with it. Go Mic up a cabinet in your kitchen. Kitchens are great for miking when you want some pronounced room reverb because they've got a lot of perpendicular flat surfaces for that sound to bounce around in and echo off of. It's a great choice for if you want to get a little experimentation in. Miking your own cabinet allows for dual miking to provide depth. This sort of harkens back to the point that I was making about you're relying on how the person that created the impulse response, um, how they actually mic the cabinet to determine the quality and the sound of your impulse response. But when you're micing your own cabinet, you can use dual-miking. Using two mics together is usually gonna provide a much better sound than just one mic alone will. And it also allows you to blend tones after the fact if you wanna do more than just a regular EQ. Now, for you to mic a cabinet, you do have to choose a microphone. Um, Mic choice is something that's very personal it uh, changes a lot depending on what you're trying to do, the tone you're trying to get, the room you're in, budget, and what's available to you. But we're going to go over some really popular choices here. So the first popular choice, and by far the most popular choice for miking a, t- a guitar cabinet, is the Shure SM57. Uh, I've got one that's what I use for most of my choices when I'm micing a guitar cabinet, and they're a great choice. They're like 90 to 100 bucks. You can get them dirt cheap, and they are extremely durable. You don't need to worry about taking it to a gig with you and it getting knocked around. In fact, Shure did a video of their SM58, which is extremely similar to the SM57, where they left it in the ocean overnight, and it still passed a the signal. They also did a bunch of other crazy experience, experiments, like running it over with a truck. So they're really durable mics that provide some great sound. Uh, The SM58 will work. They are the same microphone. The only difference is that the SM58 has the ball end on it instead of the clip-on grill. So for the SM58, you want to remove the ball end. That way you can get the proximity effect and get it right up on the speaker. But be careful not to damage the capsule. Because unlike the 57, when the ball end is off, the capsule is exposed. Dynamic mics like the SM57 and the SM58 are a common choice for both live and in the studio. But ribbon mics and condenser mics are more common in the studio. However, they're just expensive and fragile. They sound really good, but you don't want to, you know, destroy a $3,000 mic at a live venue when you could have used an SM57 and got 98% of the way there. For beginners, I'd recommend using a relatively inexpensive dynamic mic. The Shure SM57 is a great choice. Um, Other than that, anything available to you, just start to experiment with it. Now, mic placement, this is where the actual experimentation comes into play. In terms of mic placement, you have three major categories that I want to talk about. There's axis, meaning where on the speaker you're putting it in terms of center to the rim of the speaker. There's distance, how far away from the speaker you're moving the microphone. And there's the angle, meaning are you angling the microphone towards the center, or are you just keeping it straight perpendicular with the speaker cone? Now for axis, the closer you move to the center of the speaker, the more bright and trebly the signal is going to sound. The further you move towards the side, the more bassy it'll sound. And it's the same if you move to the left, top, bottom or to the right of the speaker. You're just moving off the axis. For distance, the closer you mic the the closer to the speaker you mic, the more raw and in your face the signal is going to sound. Um, You'll hear more of the speaker characteristics and less of the room and cabinet construction, but if you mic two or three inches back from the speaker, you'll hear a lot more of the actual speaker and cabinet construction combined, and this allows for the cabinet to actually reflect from the chambers inside of it to your microphone. It's usually great if you've got a cabinet that sort of imparts its own sound rather than a relatively transparent cabinet. I really love to you know, mic At a pretty far distance when I'm using my orange cabinet, because I like the sound that orange cabinets have. And lastly, for the angle, if you angle the microphone, it'll make the tone sound more warm and full, but micing it straight on is going to sound really focused and tight. So pay attention to your microphone angle. It might be just the difference that you need to get the tone that you're looking for, depending on the type of guitar you're trying to record for the type of track. Another thing that you can focus on in terms of miking your cabinets is using multiple mics. I mean, I usually run two microphones when I'm actually miking a guitar cabinet. And running two microphones, blending the sound together, can get you a lot of different tones and a lot of options post-recording that you can adjust. One right up on the speaker, slightly off-axis for a tight, focused sound full of dynamics, and one microphone two to three inches away and more off-axis and uh, angled to capture warm, full tone in the reflection of the cabinet works really well. And It's a great balance that gives you an adjustment between the two different tones, blending them together. All of that can really get you the sound that you're looking for and give you a a lot of options to create a sound that's unique to yourself. Uh, If you'd like some natural reverb, consider using a room mic. If you place this mic about 5 to 10 feet away from the amp, it captures the natural ambiance of the room. You can experiment a little bit with the placement, but I would attempt to avoid corners to prevent some base buildup, and avoid walls to prevent comb filtering. A few miscellaneous tips in terms of miking your cabinets is watch your levels. So, if the signal's too hot, try to lower the input gain on your DAW or on your mixer. Don't necessarily lower your volume, I- i.e. if you're using a mixer, don't lower the fader, lower the actual input gain. If your mic has a pad option, which is usually on more expensive condensers and ribbon microphones, you can use this to attenuate or lower the volume of the signal. And that's a great option to avoid clipping. Because as you saw earlier with the demo of the OCD running at 9-volt and 18-volt power supplies, having unnatural clipping, i.e. clipping that's not intentional, especially with microphones, gets you some really nasty sounds that just doesn't sound very musical, It doesn't sound very professional, and it's not truly capturing the, the breadth of your performance. Another tip for miking your cabinets is consider using a reflection filter if you're recording at a lower volume. Reflection filter, which is uh, sometimes called a gobo, is a large piece of acoustic paneling that can usually be curved or tilted and it's put behind the microphone in order to tame some of the noise coming from other directions, i.e. it's basically a wall that goes around the back of your microphone that way, only what's in front of the microphone is making it to the actual capsule. Um, using a reflection filter will block the noise of you playing in the room, like the acoustic noise of your strings, or maybe the noise of like your clothes when you're strumming and your shirt's rubbing on your sleeve. But all of that will be tamed by a reflection filter, It sometimes can even help with HVAC noise, like coming from an AC heating system or a fan or something like that. All of those are great options to be able to record by yourself while miking your own guitar cabinets and get a really professional, good-sounding tone out of it. That about wraps up our podcast for this week. Uh, one thing that I do want to end the show on is a really fun fact that I found out the other day, and that's that Jimi Hendrix's first strat, which Jimi Hendrix is known for playing strats, uh, especially for stringing them upside down, Fender even came out with, like, a uh, a Jimi Hendrix signature model that had a reverse headstock to simulate the left-handedness. But Jimi Hendrix's first strat was actually stolen from Keith Richard's girlfriend and given to him after they may or may not, allegedly, have had an affair before he went to England. Uh, pretty crazy to see, like, A, how small of a world it is that two of these large names in the guitar world were that close with each other and be that some uh, some form of drama happened between them especially back then that's a lot of stuff that you don't really really hear about too much especially now with modern modern musicians i thought that was interesting just wanted to share it with you guys however that's gonna be it for this week um, it was great hanging out with you guys you guys have been an awesome audience i'm glad that you've let me in, let me hang out with you, talk some guitar nerd stuff with you over the week. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys again next week. So be sure to tune in where we'll be talking about lots of crazy stuff that you'd love to hear about and developing as musicians together. Take care. This has been the Pedals and Pickups Podcast.